Hello, and welcome to the Methods of Rationality podcast. The Metropolitan Man, written by Alexander Wales, read by Emiash Brodsky. Second half of Chapter 5. Sal Maroney was a Superman spotter, which really just meant that he sat on a rooftop with a notebook and drank beers while looking out over the skyline. He listened to the radio, usually some kind of music, and smoked like a chimney. Spotting didn't pay all that well, but there wasn't an easier job in the entire city. Sal had worked as a security guard once, and this was just like that, except there wasn't ever the slightest amount of danger. In addition to the radio, the smokes, and the beer, he had a comfortable chair that he'd pulled up from his apartment on the fifth floor and a parasol he'd bought at the flea market to block out the worst of the sun. On an average day, he'd see Superman half a dozen times, and he would faithfully write down his best guess of Superman's location, speed, and direction of travel. On a few occasions, Sal had been tempted to just take a nap and then make things up but he'd been told that his observations would be checked against what the other spotters put down. He could see a few of them on other rooftops. He'd heard the sirens earlier, and the WGBS had switched from the adventures of Lolly Lemon to reporting on the return of the clockwork bomber. It was about two hours after that when Superman rose up from near the Daily Planet building, moving so fast that Sal might have missed it if he hadn't been paying attention. In his notebook, Sal wrote down the details, making some best guesses. There was a man named Lonnie who sat at Greco's cafe. He took in the notes from the spotters once night fell, and had taught them how to make the most accurate estimations of speed, distance, and direction. Sal enjoyed being a spotter. It was boring most of the time, but boring was the same as relaxing if you looked at it the right way. Another perk of the job was getting to see the news in the making. Sal had seen Superman go in for a slow landing on top of Daily Planet building, and then the next day he'd read the interview in the paper. It was nice to be able to see Superman flying and connect the dots later on. Sal would read the newspaper and be able to make sense of what his notes actually meant. More often than not, the crimes he stopped were small or private, but sometimes something big would happen in Metropolis, and Sal would get a glimpse of it. Let's get to some news. When the radio started talking about bombs, Sal cracked open another beer and settled in. Today would be a busy day for spotting. Superman responded to the second bomb, and Lex felt a sense of relief. There was no way to know whether it had been a bluff or simple indecision, or maybe even poor information. But for whatever reason, Superman had decided to stick his neck out. Lex would have to arrange another interview with Lois Lane in order to find out what Superman had really said to her, but it would have to wait. That Superman hadn't tried to make a deal with the bomber was not wholly surprising. The selection of attacks to try had taken careful consideration. Anything that caused a death throes had to be avoided, and Lex put a preference towards those agents which would cause weakness or paralysis in humans. There was no way of knowing whether Kryptonian biology was similar, of course. Lex had considered the possibility that in attempting to destroy Superman, he might unintentionally cause the disaster he wished to avert. But Lex was certainly not the only player in this game, and their plots were far more dangerous than his. 
All the more reason to take minor risks to kill Superman when the other players seem to be doing nothing more than trying to piss him off. There were 48 bombs spread out over four days, one every two hours. After the third bomb had gone off, he'd sent all his employees, besides Mercy, home for the day and sequestered himself in his office. He had adequate food and water, a set of fresh suits hanging in his closet, and a private bathroom. It was more or less everything that he needed. During this time of crisis, Lex would play things safely and do nothing too terribly out of character. He would offer a reward for information leading to the bomber. He would offer to help the police in any way that he could, and he would listen to the reports as they came in. The facts could be collected afterwards when the whole ordeal was over, but Lex didn't think that the man he was pretending at being would apply harsh security during a time of crisis. There would be immense scrutiny. If the bombs simply stopped, the police would go on the hunt. Lex made the call that would tie up the loose ends and divert attention away from him. He was extremely skeptical that a path could be drawn back to him, but Lex Luthor was cautious, and so a false trail had been laid instead. Officers Milheiser and Kennedy walked up the stairs, sweating in the summer heat. They'd been working back-to-back shifts ever since the day before when the bombings had started up again, as had most of the police and firefighters in the greater metropolis area. The mayor had briefly talked about instituting martial law, but no one was keen on that. The compromise was double shifts. The elevator in the building was out, and it was just their luck that the apartment was on the 10th floor. It was more or less how the last few days had been going for them. Any reason the captain wants us chasing this down? Asked Milheiser. He said an anonymous tip is more trustworthy, said Kennedy. Milheiser nearly stopped. How does that figure? Well, there's a big reward out for information, right? More tips have been flooding in than we could ever take a look at because there's no penalty for making stuff up, and maybe if you get lucky, you get a little piece of the pie. So, we got people sending us all sorts of crap. Gossip about the neighbors, reports about people that they just don't like, paranoid fantasies, all that. $10,000 is in the pot right now thanks to Luther, and that's enough to attract all kinds of crazies. So the captain thinks that an anonymous tip is more trustworthy because no one stands to gain from it? You got it, said Kennedy with a strained smile. The heat was getting to him. And the captain didn't stop to think maybe someone else would figure that and send the pair of us to a building with no working elevator so we'd have to sweat our asses off climbing to the top? Kennedy had no response to that. He might have said that no one would do that in a time of crisis, but he knew Metropolis well enough to know that wasn't the case. He'd seen enough rioting and looting to come to the conclusion that people were bastards. When they got to the 10th floor, they knocked on the door and found that it swung in to the touch. Kennedy and Milheiser shared a glance and drew their revolvers. It occurred to both of them that perhaps the clockwork bomber had lured them there just to make a point. But they entered anyway. In the center of the apartment, a young man was hanging from the rafters by his belt. He'd been dead for hours and the smell was utterly offensive. Milheiser rushed to the bathroom to throw up, while Kennedy made sure the place was cleared. It was a pretty cut-and-dry suicide, with a kicked-out chair beneath the young man, but Kennedy went through the motions anyway. 
He stood the chair up and made sure the hanged man would actually have been able to stand on it, since he'd heard that sometimes people would stage a murder to look like a suicide, but forget the details. He was vaguely disappointed when the chair was the right height. Kennedy had moved on to a small workshop area by the time Milheiser walked out of the bathroom, wiping his mouth with the back of his sleeve. Looks like our guy was a tinker at least, said Kennedy. He leafed through a set of schematics, pulling out some of the bits of electrical wire and springs, trying to make heads or tails of it. There were copious notes and detailed drawings, but it didn't snap into focus until Melheiser unearthed a book titled The Manufacture of Explosives. It's really him, said Milheiser with a shake of his head as Kennedy began laying out the papers. The body was in the other room and would have to be dealt with, but neither of them relished the thought of going up and down the stairs again, which they'd surely have to do a few times before the day was out. Let's call it in. Looks like there's an address here. Might be the place where the bombs were made. Lex Luthor was a people person. People told him their problems, and he found solutions. It had been that way ever since his childhood on the streets of suicide slums, the worst neighborhood that Metropolis had to offer. So far as anyone besides Mercy knew, Lex had gone legitimate. The vast majority of his criminal enterprises were run through various intermediaries who knew him only by code words over the phone. Since Superman's arrival, Lex had let much of that go to rot. It was easy enough to make money in perfectly legitimate ways if you had a mind as keen as Lex's. Instead, he used his network of slush funds and discreet contacts in order to facilitate his private war against Superman. Harry Kramer had been a piece of serendipity. He'd been an expert in explosives by the age of 16, thanks in part to a father who had done demolition work in a mine upstate before losing his life to a faulty detonator. Kramer liked to blow things up, and got involved in professional fireworks before he was discharged after an incident that lost his boss the use of two fingers. It was when Kramer got hired on to do a bank job that he came to the attention of Lex. The job had been an abject failure, though it was no fault of the explosives, which had worked perfectly. Kramer had been willing to hire himself out again, but he was difficult to work with and there wasn't much call for an explosives expert in the criminal underworld of Metropolis. Harry had been working as a grocery bagger until Lex needed his expertise. Lex could design the bombs easily enough, but wasn't willing to put himself in a position where he could be seen making or delivering them. He'd given Harry a new apartment and a workshop, along with a large amount of freedom. A careful examination of the evidence would reveal a hidden hand behind the clockwork bomber. Harry Kramer had received a large amount of money from an uncle down in Georgia, and if that thread were tracked down, the sham would be revealed and point back to Metropolis. This was part of Lex's design. There were 48 bombs in total. 13 were found by Superman prior to detonation, and he managed the evacuation and the removal or controlled detonation of the bomb. Any hesitance he displayed in front of Lois was completely gone, and over the course of the extended bombing, the enactment of martial law, and everything else, he'd proven himself to be a complete hero in every way. When he wasn't helping with rescue efforts or stopping the bombs, he could regularly be seen watching over the city. 
You look like shit, Clark, said Lois when they got back to work. Most of the businesses had temporarily closed after the second day. The Daily Planet had closed on the 4th, when some people were saying that the bombs would keep going off forever. I didn't get much sleep. He replied with a yawn. I kept worrying that my apartment was going to explode out from under me, and I'd die choking. Lois had escaped the mustard gas with only a small blister on her left hand and a light cough. She considered herself lucky. No one had died from the mustard gas, but it was one of the tamest things that had come out of the bombs. She'd spent the days off from work pacing back and forth, sleeping heavily, and using her home phone to try to get a break in the story, though the phones were nearly as useless as the radio. Who do you think did it? They caught him, Lois. One man working alone? And you believe that? He came into a lot of money. He was smart and deranged. Everyone who knew him thought that it made sense after the fact, and some of them had even reported him to the police. If he hadn't switched apartments, they'd have got him. Sure, and if you buy that, I've got a bridge to sell you. The police are investigating it all. They've found a few of the guys that planted the bombs, and a couple of places that delivered the materials used for construction. I don't know anything about making bombs, but I can believe that a single person might be able to make as many as he did, if given enough time. But add on all the logistics on top of that, all the scoping out of locations and arrangements for delivery? No, no way he was acting alone. I'm not saying that we can solve it from our desks, but think about it, Clark. She looked at him. Someone intelligent, resourceful, wealthy, with deep criminal connections and a strong desire to see Superman dead. There's one guy head and shoulders above everyone else on that list. William Calhoun. The last crime boss of Metropolis. Said Lois with a nod. If you could follow the trails well enough, I have no doubt that they'd lead back to him. William Calhoun was 58 years old, which was ancient for a crime boss. When Superman had come along, organized crime had to either toughen up or flee the city, and Willie seemed to be one of the only ones willing to toughen up. Boss Moxie had continued on like nothing was different, and now he was sitting in Sing Sing. Johnny Stitches and Toby Whale had left for Gotham City, while Angelo Beretti simply evaporated like mist. And that left Willie as a big fish in the biggest pond in the world, with the only problem being that the pond was being shot full of holes by a nut with a Tommy gun. Willie had been working on the metaphor for a while, and it still wasn't quite right. Willie was looking over the books in his lead-lined office and trying to figure out a way to get people to pay their bookies when there was a commotion downstairs in the bar. Not really having any enthusiasm for the drudgery of what he'd been looking at, Calhoun wandered down the stairs. His two guards followed. Superman stood in the middle of the elephant club, with everyone around him giving him a wide berth. Superman was staring at Willy from the moment he started walking down the stairs, and maybe even before that. He could see through walls, the prick. Hello, William. His voice was calm and gentle as a breeze. Willie put on his most casual demeanor. He kept telling the boys that they had nothing to be worried about when it came to Superman. Sure, Superman would foil crimes and get them locked up, but he never hurt anyone, not even in the process of arresting them. Mickey Fingers had stabbed Superman in the eyes, and Superman had just stood there like a statue. But it was hard not to think about what the man could do. 
You're trespassing, said Willie. He tried to keep his voice light. This establishment is open to the public. Well, you're blacklisted then. I'll have to put up a sign that says no Superman. This brought a round of nervous chuckles from the crowd. I'll be leaving soon. I just wanted to let you know that I'm watching you. You've been careful, but not careful enough. There's nowhere that you can hide from me. There's nothing that I won't do to bring you to justice. Oh, really? Willie strode towards the Superman with a confidence that he almost felt. Anything? Then I've got a deal for you. Tear off one of me arms and I'll be in so much pain, I'll give you a full confession for whatever it is you think I did. Go on. Do it. Superman didn't move. I'm not a monster. No, you're a monster, all right. You just don't want people thinking that you are. You don't want to get your hands dirty. I've heard from a bunch of guys that you're nothing but a big fat pussy. And standing here looking at you, I can see it's absolutely true. Willie could feel his blood pumping in his ears. Months of frustration at the hands of Superman were coming to a head. Willie had tried to stay low, but his organization could only stay starved of cash flow for so long. Willie'd been funding lawsuits against Superman, false accusations and red tape, along with whatever else he could think of. Some of the guys talked about killing Superman, but that was a fool's errand. The bombs had proven that. Willie just wanted him to leave, to go bother Gotham City or Bloodhaven. No one likes you. No one wants you here. Get that through your thick alien skull. You think the government doesn't have plans to kill you? Hell, you think they haven't tried? That was Willie's best guess as to who was behind the bombings after talking it out with Luther. You do whatever the fuck you feel like doing and expect us to praise you. Well, I've got news for you. It's not gonna happen. Eventually, someone's gonna find a way to kill you. And I'll be the first in line to piss on your grave. Willie spat at Superman and watched as the glob of phlegm hit him in the cheek. Superman could have dodged it. Probably could have reached across the room and grabbed a mug to catch it in. But he'd just let it hit him. I just wanted to let you know that I know. In everything that you do, be aware that I'm watching you. When you're arrested, it will be completely by the books. When you're convicted to life in prison, I hope that they are able to rehabilitate you. Superman didn't touch the spit on his cheek. He just turned and walked out the door. The bar exploded into conversation, and Willie went back upstairs to think about what it was that Superman had actually known. Forty-eight bombs, and not so much as a cough or a sneeze from Superman. In his lead-lined study was a large map of Metropolis, five feet to a side, which took up a place of prominence on one wall. Stuck into this map were pins with small flags on them, each of them a recorded Superman sighting. The information had been collected from various sources, from newspaper reports to eyewitnesses. Lex had dozens of people around the city who worked as Superman watchers, and they would sit atop tall buildings and make notes of the lone figure flying through the sky whenever they could. Lex was looking for patterns. Which directions did Superman come from? 
Which directions did he go? What crimes did he tend to respond to, and which did he ignore? What were his hours of activity? Lex had long hypothesized that Superman had a base of operations somewhere, likely the same place that his starship was stashed. Finding it would be a godsend. The arrival of the clockwork bomber had provided a wealth of data. Lex sat down to do some math. Each arrival and departure could be defined by a vector, and these were represented on the map by small lines drawn moving away from the pins in different colors. Lex compared the times and directions and began by throwing out all those vectors with known destinations. When he was done, he was left with 1,861 vectors to manipulate. He began mapping them in different ways to see whether Superman favored one side of the city over the other, or whether he consistently came into the city from one direction. He found a slight eastward inclination to arrivals and westward inclination to departures, though given that the entire United States was to the west of Metropolis, that might have just been because Superman often responded to large-scale crises outside of the city. Following that middling success, Lex did some complicated math to make another map that showed where vectors converged. He eventually circled ten square blocks in the center of Metropolis. It was there that Superman kept going towards, though that might have been simply because Superman spent his time waiting in the center of the city. It was close to a futile exercise. The data was bad. It was cobbled together from too many sources, and too many of those sources were unreliable. There were certainly data points that were lies told by people who wished they had more interesting lives. Lex couldn't properly trust the data, and so couldn't properly trust the conclusions that he drew from the data. Worse, Superman was aware that people were watching him. Still, it was better to grasp at straws than to simply give up. Lex began segmenting the vectors into blocks of time. Even with unreliable data, it was well established that Superman was less active during working hours, and so perhaps it might be that paring down the data would help to reveal something more. The big problem there was that the data became thinner and even less reliable. Nevertheless, Lex continued on. There were other plates spinning that wouldn't need to be touched for a while, and in the meantime, Lex could pretend that he was getting somewhere. The math was somewhere between difficult and tedious, and not at all pleasant. When he was done, Lex frowned at the result. He circled four city blocks on the map, slightly away from the direct center of downtown. He turned to look at Mercy, who sat in a padded chair drinking tea and reading a book. Mercy, darling, my brain is failing me, said Lex. Sorry to hear that, sir, replied Mercy, not bothering to look up. I've been staring too closely at this for far too long. Eight o'clock in the morning to five o'clock at night. I can feel something refusing to spring to mind there. Something that's not quite clicking. It's standard working hours for most of downtown. Lex turned back to the map. He stared at it. There was something he was missing, some piece of the puzzle. Nine to five, but not on weekends. It was fuzzy, painfully fuzzy, but the data was clear and the correlations were real. Lex was on the verge of a breakthrough, if only he could...
son of a bitch. End chapter 5 Thank you to the following people. Kate Baker, reading Mercy Graves. Drake Walker, Willie Calhoun. Officer Melheiser by Lance Finney. Officer Kennedy by Alexander Jackson. Lois Lane by Anonymous. Superman and Clark Kent by Nathan Bowman. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for Chapter 6. And I